You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. What is the foundation of reality? I think about this. I prioritize the scientific method, but I do not dismiss, as many scientists do, a possible existence of a supreme being, God or something like God. I've taken a philosophical approach, subjecting traits and doctrines of God to analytic inquiry. I find myself with two motives. The first is to explore what is meant by God, deeply meant, assuming God exists, of course. The second is to examine how our minds deal with God, how we rationalize what we already believe. For example, in the West, the Christian doctrine of the atonement makes a staggering claim. God, the creator, brings about ultimate purpose for all human beings by somehow expiating sin through Jesus, the one incarnated human being. For believers, how could the atonement come about? What might be its underlying workings, its metaphysical mechanisms? For non-believers, what does the atonement say about the kind of God that supposedly designed it? What's the atonement? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my philosophical inquiry. The word atonement has at least three common usages. In ordinary life, atonement means making up for mistakes. In Judaism, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, is when one is purified, cleansed from sins before God. In Christianity, because the wages of sin is death, atonement means reconciling humanity with God through Jesus Christ. I was brought up with the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish year. But I never much cared how atonement works theologically. The Christian atonement takes a step further, a giant step. Jesus, the incarnated God, lives, suffers, dies, and is resurrected. And this oft-told story of Jesus' life, Christians claim, enables the atonement. Can this make sense? Although I don't know if I could believe in Judaism or Christianity, I am intrigued by how such theological systems work. On the one hand, atonement probes the Judeo-Christian God. On the other hand, atonement is a linchpin in grand theological schemes. To discern each, I follow arguments, seek consistencies, watch out for contradictions. I hear of a workshop on the Christian atonement. I go to Scotland, St. Andrews University, the Logos Institute for Analytic and Exegetical Theology. I begin with a philosopher of religion whose book, Atonement, covers diverse explanations, Eleanor Stump. Eleanor, one of the critical elements in the Christian doctrine of salvation is the concept of atonement. I'd like to understand how that works in reality, not, not, a, not a child's tale. So what you have to understand is that although the doctrine that Christ's life, passion, death, and resurrection have solved the problem 
of human evil. That's a central doctrine of Christianity, but there is no creedal formula for it. And what that means is that although Christians are bound to accept the idea that somehow Christ saves them, they aren't bound to accept any particular explanation of how he does it. Now, there are a lot of theories in the history of the Christian world, a lot of theories for how to explain this basic claim. The idea is something like this. God would love to be reconciled with you, be at peace with you, but he can't. Something about his justice or his honor or his goodness rules out his just being at peace with you and reconciled with you because of what you've done. And therefore, something has to be done. Christ has to pay a penalty for you or Christ has to pay a debt for you or Christ has to give God a penance for you. Those are theories we tend to associate with Anselm. I think that in the end, they present a God who is not loving. That's my view of it. To be loving is to want the good of the other guy and to want union with him. If you love, that's what you want. Now, maybe that you can't get what you want. Maybe that even if you're God, you can't get what you want. I mean, the Bible says God wants all people to be saved, but it also says that they all aren't. So the Bible says there are things God wants that God doesn't get, even an omnipotent God. God can love unrequitedly. So the problem that needs some solution is not a problem of helping God give you a pardon or come closer to you or be reconciled with you or declare you righteous or any of those things. The problem is you. I can't come close to you if you want to be close to me and also don't want to be close to me. It works that way for God too. He can offer you love, offer you union, but he can't unilaterally get what he wants. So something about Christ's passion and death is supposed to help with that problem. In the human condition, if you live past the age of reason at all, you're going to have guilt. You're going to have committed wrongdoings. And you're going to have things you're ashamed of. And you certainly don't want God to see. That's one problem that needs a solution. And the other part of the problem that needs a solution is what you are now. What is there about Christ's life, Christ's passion, Christ's death, that can help you in any way with the problem that you are. He can help with the fragmentation in your will by encouraging you to surrender. And on this theory, Christ is a moral exemplar and that's all he is. He shows you, look, try it like this, it works better like this. I disavow that theory. But there is something Christ can do that will help you to surrender. When you resist love, why is it you resist it? Maybe you will feel humiliated. Maybe you will feel ugly. What happens if you join yourself to another person? Maybe that person will have ideas for how your life will go and maybe you won't like them. Maybe you'll lose some of your ability to control your own destiny, which is a very polite way of saying you'd have to give up some of your self-absorbed self-willedness. <laughs> And what does Christianity give you? It gives you an image of God that looks like this. Naked, tortured, rejected, violated, 
by the authorities of his day, shamed in front of his family, his friends, his mother, with his arms out, saying, come to me. How easy is it to let go and accept that? Once you let go and surrender, the whole process of healing you can begin. It can't begin without the surrender. And that image of Christ on the cross, humiliated, tortured, and dying out of love for you, that is the best help for starting the process. Eleanor centers the atonement on human wrongdoings and guilt. And because God cannot coerce love, something strong needs to bring about union with God. Is this the atonement as psychotheology? My term, not hers. I do see the human problem and God's supposed solution. But how does the atonement actually work? What causes what? What must happen? And what makes it happen? Can the root meaning of atonement shed light, linguistically, biblically? I asked the founder and director of the Logos Institute, Alan Torrance. Atonement comes from the three words at one minute, of course. And so the suggestion is that an alienated humanity is by an act of divine grace brought to a position of being at one with God and God's purposes for humanity. And that that is done by grace and in the person of, of Jesus Christ. And grace in this context simply means this. Um, it recognizes the fact that there's no way that an alienated humanity could in and of itself bring itself to be at one with God. Right. And therefore God fulfills what human beings couldn't do for themselves. And that's the act of and grace. And that's an act of grace. Okay. Exactly, free grace. Right. And he wasn't obliged to do it. Now the way that happens is by use of, of Jesus' death. So, so how, how, how is that literally working? The Catholic tradition focuses on Jesus' death. Usually the phrase is the work of Christ on the cross. Oh. Is we take the word Paul uses for redemption, apolytrosis, and, and look at its Jewish roots. Three key Hebrew concepts. One, um, padah, the idea that God delivered his people who were from slavery, from bondage in Egypt by his mighty arm. That's an act of redemption. And then there's a, what's the, the Kippur Kofer tradition, where the sacrifice at Yom Kippur, where God declares to Israel that they are delivered from the sin by means of a life given in their place. And then there's the Goel or Ga'al element, which refers to a kinsman redeemer, whereby somebody loses their inheritance. Perhaps their husband dies, a brother, comes in, steps in as Goel, and restores a family to an inheritance that's lost. And for Paul, when he's using the word apolytrosis, these three concepts kind of intertwined like a strands of a rope coming together in his interpretation of what's going on in Jesus Christ. Here we're seeing the covenant God, the, who in an act of unconditioned and unconditional love for an alienated people, wants to deliver them from the bondage of sin. And so at the heart of the atonement um, is this doctrine of redemption, whereby in Christ, God's coming to deliver us from this disease, deliver us from bondage, from captivity to it, in a way that takes the costliness of it seriously, the whole sacrificial thing. And then the third element, what's, how does all this happen? Because Christ comes as our kinsman redeemer, flesh of our flesh, blood of our blood, bone of our bone, to restore us as the second Adam, 
to the inheritance that was lost in Adam in, 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 the, the, in the fall. And now the other key word he uses here is reconciliation, the Greek word katalage. I think that the fathers got it right when they summarize this by saying, God takes what is ours and transforms it so that we might have what is his, that we might share in the love that is the purpose um, for the contingent order. Are there any boundaries of what God does in this forgiveness uh, process? I think there aren't. I think there are no boundaries to forgiveness. I think God forgives us prior to any atonement. It's, the atonement is an expression of God's love and forgiveness for his people. I don't, actually don't think it makes any sense to say that one loves a person unconditionally, but one's not going to forgive them. Uh, if somebody dies and is not, does not accept Jesus or rejects Jesus affirmatively, what happens then if you say that God's forgiveness has no bounds? Is the no bounds uh, terminated with death? And everybody fears that, uh, by um, conservative Christian friends, would fear that my position commits us to universalism. I'm actually not a universalist. Why is that a fear? Why that's, is, that's, why? that's a good question. Number one, it's not possible to be a Christian and want hell to be populated. To love your enemies, right, as Christ loves his enemies, is to want hell to be empty. Okay, so I've got a real problem with any forms of, all forms of Christianity that want to see you know, a, a population there. Number two, to the extent that hell is populated, it is populated by people who are loved by God. So it's covenant love and faithfulness all the way down, mm -hmm. right, even into hell. So to the extent that people occupy hell, um, it is not because, God, because they're not forgiven. There are no boundaries to God's forgiveness. Alan offers three aspects of atonement, deliverance from bondage, sacrifice for sin, redemption of what is lost, plus reconciliation in order to share God's love. Does this richer textured atonement evince breadth of meaning or evidence a kind of thrashing around to find rationale? To me, the diverse explanations of atonement highlight what's still missing in atonement, how the process works from the inside. I ask a pioneer of analytic theology, a fellow in the School of Divinity at St. Andrews, Oliver Crisp. Oliver, to realize and accept the Christian promise, which is a, a potentially a glorious one, you have to go through the salvation process, the key element of which uh, is, is atonement. How does that work? Mm. So if I don't understand how something works, what the mechanism is, then I frankly, I have trouble believing it. There's no agreed upon sort of uh, canonical or official doctrinal view on the nature of the atonement as there is, for example, on something like the doctrine of the Trinity. So some people say Christ's really about showing the divine love to us and that in a life lived of supreme holiness and a supreme act of sacrifice at the end of his life, he demonstrates God's love to us and we should seek to emulate that. In which case the work of Christ is really not so much about reconciling us to God, it's really more about us showing us how we ought to live and how we ought to imitate Christ. Okay. There's no real atonement happening there, so I don't <laughs> right, think it's a doctrine of atonement, right? right. It is an account of the work of Christ, but not doctrine of atonement. 
uh, then there are some people who say that, well, fundamentally, Christ's atoning work is about ransoming us. It's about paying a price for us. And the price is sometimes said to be paid to the devil to whom, whom we were sold in slavery through sinning. Uh, other people say it's not to the devil, but it's uh, somehow a ransom price that God pays himself. But in any case, there are different views of how Christ uh, pays this ransom through dying. So, so that's a good way of thinking about the ransom view. Then you've got another uh, view called the satisfaction view. And here the central idea is that um, human sin uh, estranges us from God and either God must punish that sin in you and me or there must be some alternative. And the alternative is that God's honor that's been uh, besmirched by human sin is vindicated by some act of satisfaction. And Christ's death is offered up as, as a way of satisfying God's honor or God's justice. So that God doesn't have to punish us because Christ has satisfied uh, the demands of justice or the demands of honor on yeah, our behalf. That, that, that makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. Well, I mean, some versions of satisfaction do say God demands it. Others say uh, there are alternatives open to God, but there may be good reasons why he deploys satisfaction. Reasons for, sh like, for example, showing that there's something morally serious about sin and its consequences. And another main option is what's sometimes called penal substitution. Yeah, yeah, yeah sometimes confused with satisfaction, but they actually have different mechanisms. Because satisfaction says it's punishment or satisfaction, and satisfaction isn't a form of punishment. Right. The penal substitution theory says Christ's death is a form of punishment. Christ is punished in place of you and me. Instead of us being punished in hell, as it were, Christ is punished by dying on the cross, dying the death that we should die. And because he's punished in our place, God is able to reconcile us to himself. So uh, distinguish for me the mechanism between penal substitution and the ransom where you're paying the wages off that are dead. It just seems like different metaphors for the same thing. My way of thinking about the ransom view is that it doesn't have a clear mechanism. So you could bring the ransom view into something like a penal substitution view oh. to supplement it, but I think penal substitution, unlike the ransom view, does have at its heart a mechanism, and so is a kind of full-orbed account of what, what is it that's going on here. So these uh, four or five or so different characters, and I'm sure there are subcategories of each, yeah. um, they're not mutually exclusive? Not necessarily. Some may be. So for example, uh, the heart of penal substitution is an account that's distinct from satisfaction and they're not commensurate because satisfaction says Christ's not being punished, he's oh, satisfying. Right, 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 right. Penal substitution is he is being punished. So in that sense, those two can't both be true. Okay. Um, but you could bring in ransom and apply it to either satisfaction or penal substitution. You can bring in a moral example of you as well. So some of them are, are compostable, they can be had together, but not all of them. Where, where are you standing on this spectrum right now? Well, that's a good question. So I, I try to think of the atonement as fundamentally about being united to Christ. And I want to tel a story that um, is partly, uh, there are partly elements of penal substitution and then there are partly elements of an older view um, called theosis, which is about how in taking, up, in taking human nature, Christ, as it were, scoops us up in order to bring us up into the divine life that we can enjoy the divine life and participate in the divine life. So I want to bring those two things together and fuse them into a new way of thinking of the atonement that I call the union account. That there's a sense in which we are truly united with Christ so that he can act in a way that reflects a real relationship with us, much like we have in other contexts where um, we have some kind of real union with someone um, and we can act as a unit together. That's something like that that's going on in the atonement, I think. 
And that's really important. Oliver arrays four possible ways or metaphysical mechanisms by which the Christian atonement could work. Emulation, Christ is the model to follow. Ransom, paying a price to buy us back, whether from God or from the devil, seems a matter of odd debate. Satisfaction, God must punish for sin. God's judgment must be fulfilled. Penal substitution, Christ is punished in our place, dying on the cross. Some of these four ways contradict, not complement each other. Good, that means pat answers won't work. I like alternative explanations. Make Christian philosophers think hard, challenge them, see what they come up with. On the atonement, I have so far engaged with Christian philosophers. Would a Christian theologian or biblical scholar think differently? While both are believers and end up affirming the atonement, they begin with different principles and proceed along different routes. I meet the former Bishop of Durham, a theologian and a biblical scholar at St. Andrews, N.T. Tom Wright. Tom, I've heard the uh, now cliche that uh, Jesus died for my sins and all of that. What does this atonement really mean in depth? Atonement is a shorthand which actually has to be unpacked into a story that when the Bible says Christ died for our sins, it says in accordance with the scriptures. And the way I see it, what often has happened in Christian theology is people said, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the story I'm going to tell you, to which I can supply a few biblical footnotes. And I would say, no, what matters is the story which the scriptures tell, in other words, the Old Testament, which is a story about the creator and the creation, about humans made in God's image, rebelling, worshiping idols, about God's call of Israel to be the solution to that problem, but Israel too being composed, alas, of fallible human beings who get it wrong. All of that ends with exile, that um, the exile of Adam and Eve from the garden is then repeated on a grand scale, the exile of Israel from the land and off to Babylon. And when you then tell the story on through and you get the great prophecies, it's all about how God is going to forgive those sins, deal with exile, and so renew creation. And so when Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that's what's going on the four Gospels tell the story of Jesus not only as the story of where creation and Israel are coming to its climax, but as the story of how the power of evil in the world reached its climax as well. That is the heart of what the New Testament says. Now, God knew this before the foundations of the world. How much of this was pre-planned? I think what is pre-planned is this. God makes a creature called human, male and female, in his image, in the full knowledge that he is giving them a vocational responsibility which it will be possible for them to reject. Idolatry is thinkable, possible. God does that knowing that if that happens, then what this will call forth from him is simply more of the self-giving love which has created the world in the first place. It will now have to take a different mode because it will be self-giving, rescuing love rather than just the glad outpouring of this amazing creation. I think the whole idea of creation is precisely making something which has its own life. Now then how does it actually work? Because if death is the wages of sin, something like that, and we all sin, uh, how then does Jesus' death apply to us? 
I think the way it works is this. It's about the story of Israel, that God called Abraham to put right what was wrong with the world. But it seems to make matters worse, ending, as I said, with the exile. Um, but then the idea of representative messiahship comes into play. Jesus is the anointed king who sums up his people in himself. So God is intending to do for the world through Israel what needs to happen. Mm -hmm. The Israel vocation devolves onto Jesus. So he is the representative one who can therefore stand in and as it were, take the weight of the thing onto himself. As the Christian master plan has it, the atonement is its fulcrum, the pivot point between, on the one side, human history and sin, and on the other side, God's salvation system through Jesus Christ. The logic seems straightforward. The wages of sin is death, all have sinned, so all must die eternally, unless there is a worthy alternative, and Jesus, with a sin-free life, is that worthy alternative. Then it gets harder those metaphysical mechanisms by which the atonement may work, all can be questioned. Emulation, but Christ as the model doesn't deal with death for sin. Ransom, but if either from God or from the devil, it seems a bit murky. Satisfaction, but wouldn't it make God stern, severe, retributional? Penal substitution. Christ as proxy punished in our place, at least it seems coherent. I always wonder whether philosophical justifications distort history. Reading back into simple ancient stories are contemporary complex thoughts and concepts when the original story was, well, just a story. Here's the larger question for those who believe in the Christian God. Was God constrained by a salvation system of sin, death, and atonement? If no, why did God choose it? If yes, is God not omnipotent? Need Christian philosophers answer this question to be closer to truth? To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.